This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. On behalf of the Christian Legal Society and our co-sponsors, the St. Thomas More Society and the Federal Society, I'm delighted to welcome you here today for this talk on religion and law. I'm Lyle Weinberger, and I'm the president of the Christian Legal Society chapter here at the University of Chicago Law School. One of the goals of the Christian Legal Society is to promote thoughtful Christian engagement with the intellectual issues that bring us together here in the law school in our studies. Law and religion are often in the news, but the controversial and contentious cases that make the headlines are often, unfortunately, presented as just another iteration of the so-called culture wars. Religion and the law, however, have a deeper, richer, and more complex and interesting relationship than the press coverage might lead us to believe. To help us think about the relationship of law and religion today, we're privileged to have uh, one of the most distinguished scholars working on this subject here with us today. Professor Michael McConnell graduated from the University of Chicago Law School and and then clerked for Chief Judge J. Skelly Wright of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit and for Justice William Brennan of the U.S. Supreme Court. He served in several capacities in the executive branch, including assistant to the Solicitor General, before entering academia. He taught here at the University of Chicago and at the University of Utah, becoming known as one of the leading scholars on the Constitution's religion clauses. He was appointed to the Tenth Circuit by President George W. Bush, and he served there until 2009 when he joined the faculty at Stanford. He is now the Richard and Francis Mallory Professor and Director of the Constitutional Law Center at Stanford. After Professor McConnell's remarks, we will have brief comments from Professor William Hubbard, who is known to most of you, Uh, already as a professor here at this law school. He earned his JD and PhD in economics uh, here at the University of Chicago, clerked on the Fifth Circuit, practiced litigation in Chicago, and joined the faculty uh, in 2011. After Professor Hubbard's comments, he will then open the floor to questions. Please join me in welcoming Professor Michael McConnell. Uh, uh, thanks very much. I, I feel like I'm home again. I, you know, I, I had classes uh, <laughs> had classes in this room, although we didn't have the fancy, attractive wood paneling and uh, uh, and modern technology in those days. Uh, but we did have Dick Helmholtz, um, which makes up for that. Uh, uh, and uh, I taught in this classroom and. Uh, and uh, it's, it's great to be back and uh, see uh, friendly faces. Um, uh, when uh, Lowell and I spoke about what I was going to speak about and came up with this topic of whether and how there is a relationship between uh, law and religion, um, I, but which is not a canned talk, I've actually not spoken on this exact uh, subject before, um, I, it occurred to me, and I was thinking over what I was going to say, uh, that which is, by the way, my prime recommendation to you if you address an audience is to do that in advance. Um, uh, it, uh, I drew inspiration from uh, what I think is one of the most thoughtful books about uh, public theology, uh, written in 1951 by H. Uh, Richard uh, Niebuhr, Uh, called Christ and Culture. And in Christ and Culture, Niebuhr sets out five different ways in which uh, the church interacts with the culture. Now, we're talking about law, but of course law is is constitutive of culture, a very important part of culture, and so I think the parallels are quite quite close. and so I'm taking inspiration from that. But in case there's some uh, Niburians here in the audience, I'd like to say in advance that I am 
changing his categories just slightly. Uh, there are two of his categories that I'm going to merge into one, and there's one of his categories I'm going to divide into two, and as a result of this, I'm going to give them slightly different names, although I'll mention what Niebuhr calls them uh, maybe uh, as appropriate uh, as we go along. So, uh, you know, don't worry, I am being a Niebuhrian heretic, but uh, uh, I think it'll uh, work out all right, and I think I'm being faithful at least to his general vision of the multiplicity of ways in which uh, Christians and members of other religious traditions interact with their cultures because there is no one path, there isn't a right answer, there are many paths, there are many traditions uh, of this. Now I'm going to follow Niebuhr in talking in Christian language for the most part. I am a Christian. I've been invited here by the Christian uh, uh, Legal Society and uh, Thomas More Society chapters, and so I'm going. That's the vocabulary I'm going to use. Um, I can't speak for other faith traditions, but I do believe it to be true uh, that all religions face a similar set of problems. So although I will be using a particular uh, religious vocabulary, uh, if those of you who are from, who are Jewish or Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu or Native American church or anything else, uh, I think will recognize the same problems. And, uh, and so I, I hope we're in conversation. I'm in conversation with everybody, not just the Christian. Uh, in the audience. Um, I'm also going to be speaking as an American and with a focus upon the relationship between religion and law in the American context. And this is uh, not because there aren't other cultures, and, but because other cultures present very different problems. Uh, we are a pluralistic a nation, a liberal democracy uh, with a substantial tradition of religious freedom and religious diversity. Um, obviously, religions have very different relationships uh, to different kinds of regimes, but I'm going to be talking primarily as, uh, uh, as an American. And so uh, I, too, am going to have five different uh, ways of thinking about the relationship between religion and law, uh, beginning with Niebuhr's uh, category that he calls the Christ of culture. Um, this is an idea that the church, that the religious community, the religion, and the culture are, are completely simpatico, or at least mostly simpatico. This can be, you can see this is a, a rather a sociological view of religion in most cultures. If you study, for example, some culture like I don't know, you know, the culture of, of, uh, of the, the steppes, uh, the Asian steppes in the 15th century, uh, uh, people will speak seamlessly of religion and other aspects of culture, uh, and they're pretty much the same thing, right? Culture and religion cannot be separated, uh, and for many societies, uh, there's, uh, there's no difference uh, uh, at all. Um, the uh, uh, and you see the church as being reflective of the dominant uh, elements within the culture, and I think historically, looking at the Christian church, uh, when we were in a monarchical regime, the church was monarchical. You know, you think of of the Church of England with the supreme head being the uh, uh, the, the the king or queen of. Uh, uh, of England and and uh, and a kind of hierarchy down from that and, and when the, when you, we move into a democratic regime the church becomes more democratic and sees democratic it becomes infused with democratic values and it espouses democratic uh, uh, values um, during Jim Crow the churches of America with some notable and honorable exceptions tended to be segregated and to support uh, seg uh, segregation. 
when we become an integrationist country, the church becomes integrationist. Uh, uh, with the women's, prior to the women's movement, you tended to have a, a pretty man-centered leadership model for most churches. And after the women's movement, this ceases to be true. And now, you've, you know, there's a major element of feminism within mainline uh, uh, Protestantism. Uh, and even right now, you know, we're moving so quickly from a world in which opposite-sex marriage was all there was, and nobody even thought of any alternatives to that, uh, to a world in which the culture fully accepts same-sex marriage, and as we speak, churches of America are figuring out what to do with that, but they're more and more uh, same-sex wedding ceremonies even being uh, conducted in churches that you know 20 years ago would never have uh, considered now now for each of these things you know monarchicalism and segregation and all of these things whether we think they're good or bad uh, the churches didn't think that they were necessarily following the culture they had religious reasons for believing these things. So they tell themselves uh, a story, and, and it may even have been a sincere telling of a story, a sincere working out, but uh, the in this model of the Christ of culture, it just coincidentally, not coincidentally, turns out that the church and the culture of which it is a part are harmonious, at least in most uh, important uh, 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 respects and the 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 effect is that the relationship between religion and law is one in which uh, the churches are a or a supplemental support for obedience to the law respect for the authorities uh, they are part of the glue that keeps the society uh, together legally and uh, culturally uh, effectively the religions provide a distinctive form of worship but no distinctive ethics so this is the first model and I think we can see that we see that all around this is not an uncommon model even uh, today even though it may sound not particularly flattering right? uh, but it, it certainly is recognizable um, a second category uh, I, I call, uh, slightly departing from Niebuhr's terminology, I call Christ apart from culture, the church apart from uh, the culture. And, and here is the idea that uh, Christianity and certainly other religions as well, but again I'm speaking uh, from a Christian point of view, is so radically at odds with the value of the world uh, that, uh, you know, never the twain uh, uh, shall meet. Let me just read you a quick uh, quote from Niebuhr that captures this. He says, um, The state and Christian faith are simply incompatible, for the state is based on love of power and the exercise of violence, whereas the love, humility, forgiveness, and non-resistance of Christian life draws it completely away from political measures and institutions. Against the evil of the state, there is no defense except complete non-participation. Right. Um, the most dramatic examples of that that we would be familiar with would be, for example, the Amish or in the uh, uh, Hasidic tradition, the Satmar Hasidim would be a, a Jewish example uh, of the same uh, thing. Uh, for a long time, fundamentalist Protestants in America were sort of like this, from the birth of fundamentalism in the 1920s until, I'd say, roughly the 1960s and 1970s. The fundamentalist Protestants by and large were pietistic. They believed in you know, faith in Christ and a life of prayer and personal righteousness, but they did not imagine that they were going, going to uh, really affect what's going on out in the uh, political or legal world. They left that for other people. Just leave us alone is kind of the slogan of, uh, of the Christ apart from culture. Uh, uh, folks, and now the fundamentalists broke into a different mode 
in the 60s and 70s, that's what, which we would be much more familiar with, and I think we're still kind of leave, living with the uh, uh, aftershocks of that uh, change in fundamentalist practice. Um, in the wake of Obergefell, and I don't think it's just Obergefell, but a whole series, a whole set of related uh, cultural changes that we could... Uh, you know, you all know what I'm talking about. I'm not really quite sure what the what the objective label is, but essentially progressive cultural uh, 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 developments. Uh, a lot of Christians today are talking about this option again, who didn't talk about it before. And the word I've been hearing, maybe you've heard it also, is the Benedict option, not referring to the recent pope. Uh, but to St. Benedict and the idea of withdrawing into what effect, effectively a monastic idea, uh, just uh, leave us alone. Let us live our lives in accordance with our values and uh, you, the world, you know, <laughs> do what you will, you know. Uh, uh, just don't bother us. Let us uh, uh, live as we wish. And so this is Christ apart from uh, culture. Um, the, the next view, uh, actually I want to talk about, is Christ against culture, or the church against culture. And the idea here is sim- similar to what Niebuhr said in that quote a moment ago, that Christianity and the world are uh, incompatible uh, value systems, but instead of retreating into one, uh, a monastery or a cave or, uh, or, or the catacombs, right? Uh, instead of doing that, uh, be active resistors, be opponents of the regime, fight it, right? Uh, not from within, but actually fight it. It's they're they're uh, they're the enemy. Uh, bring it down if you can. Right then, um, w- there was a lot of this in uh, the, in the high Middle Ages. I really hesitate to talk about this with Dick Helmholtz in the room, since he's the world's greatest expert on all of this. But I think of of when uh, Henry the Fourth is kneeling. Supposedly, I don't actually know if this happened, but the myth, at least, is Henry the Fourth, the Holy Roman Empire, kneels in the in the snow at Canossa for three days, uh, begging forgiveness from uh, Pope Gregory, uh, uh, or uh, on the one side, or uh, the art. Uh, uh, Thomas More, the Archbishop of Canterbury, after whom your society is named, being murdered in the cathedral, um, or the Pope uh, excommunicating King John and uh, anybody who, uh, who who supported him, uh, which is a lot of the story behind Magna Carta. Uh, you know, the Church and the worldly uh, leadership being uh, in a struggle for power. They're being being antagonistic uh, to one another. I think perhaps more interesting and more engaging from our point of view would be modern resistance to totalitarianism. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's uh, resistance to the uh, uh, Hitler regime being, you know, I think a, a, a huge inspiration to many of us. Uh, uh, I think of solidarity in Poland uh, as being an example of this, a successful uh, example of resistance to the regime. Certainly the Latin American church in many, uh, many particular countries has seen itself in this way. A little bit less today than it was true 20 or 30 years ago, but still a major idea that the, the, uh, the, the church... Uh, religion can serve as a focal point of resistance and opposition to uh, evil, uh, evil regimes. Um, in this country, during the period of slavery, uh, William Lloyd Garrison, who was one of the most prom, I assume most of you are familiar with him, one of the most prominent of the abolitionists. Uh, I don't know if you knew. Uh, the, the, the Liberator, every issue of the Liberator uh, has a cross up at the top. This was a, an intensely religious uh, uh, movement, 
But Garrison uh, was not working within the system. His, their slogan was that the Constitution was a covenant with hell, right? And, uh, uh, and, a, and so they, were, they wanted to bring down the regime. I'm going to contrast that in a moment with, with the, the next view is a much softer version of the same idea, but that this is uh, this is what what uh, Niebuhr calls Christ transforming culture. I, I'm not that much of a of a triumphalist. I prefer to think of it as Christ or the Church or religion influencing culture. So again, the idea here is that the culture, the world, has different values from the religion, but uh, instead of retreating. And instead of rebelling or trying to bring down the regime, uh, it's try to transform the regime, working within the regime uh, in order to transform the regime into something where the values are, are more closely uh, associated with what you think is, is right. Uh, here, I think you know, Dr. Martin Luther King is a great example. And what a contrast to William Lloyd Garrison. Right, because when you uh, when you read uh, Dr. King's work, um, he is calling upon Americans to live up to our highest ideals. Right, uh, they, it may be even a romanticized version of what those ideals are. Right, uh, but uh, that's what he's doing. It's a it's a trans, it's a transformative move and not an antagonistic. Uh, uh, attack on um, uh, on the regime. I think the pro-life movement, for the most part, is a you know a great example of uh, of this uh, uh, today. Uh, and uh, uh, the anti-war, the a lot of most of the anti-war movement, not all of it, but a great deal of it, religiously inspired. They also uh, are of this. Uh, you'll note that I'm giving examples from both the left and the right because religion and the Christian religion in particular is not of the left or of the right. It can be located anywhere uh, under this idea of Christ transforming culture. Um, it's the, all we really know is that uh, is that it's different from the culture, right? That it offers a vision that's going to be different and maybe, you know, one side of the politi- political sphere or the other, but, uh, uh, but it is uh, different and, and transforming. And this, by the way, leads to all kinds of interesting legal questions because of the idea, which I disagree with as a matter of constitutional Principle. This is what I'm talking about, but I disagree with this idea. But there is this notion that somehow it violates the separation between church and state for uh, religious people to, uh, to, to win out in the democratic argument and have their values reflected in, uh, in the society. Now, uh, I don't, we could talk about why I don't agree with that, but it is a very common view that uh, that uh, when uh, uh, when religious people speak as religious people, uh, that they have no business in the public square. Uh, I, I think that that's not true. But for purposes now, what's really key is that that, that this this particular idea of the church transforming culture is antithetical uh, uh, to that. And then the last uh, of um, Niebuhr's categories is what he calls Christ and culture in paradox. Uh, I don't like that vocabulary because I don't really quite fully, I don't really understand what it means. It's a little too you know, Pomo for my taste. Uh, um, I'm a little, I maybe I'm just too linear uh, a thinker for the, uh, for this. But but what I think it means uh, is that uh, it's the idea that most, maybe not all, but most of the values and demands of the Christian life are simply in a different plane than the demands of law or the culture. They're about something else, 
Right. Uh, uh, let me read you what Niebuhr has to say about that because he puts it better than I could. He says, um, he says the uh, the Christian well, can be the best of citizens. He says uh, that. Uh, he will first of all be a good man in accordance with the standards of good culture, sobriety, and personal conduct, accompanied by honesty and economic dealings, obedience to political authority, but he will also be self-sacrificing, forgiving, and humble, and pursue the life of love of God uh, for his own uh, sake. He says, and this is again a quote from Niebuhr, uh, the demands of the two spheres are of a different nature but are not in conflict, right? And so um, I don't think we want to read that to the extreme. There may be some conflicts, right? But uh, I think the con- I think in, in the in the actual world, this is a, I think an extremely common uh, way in which Christians live in a society. That is, um, we believe that uh, the Faith and grace and prayer and love for our fellow human beings is what it's all about. It's you know what's going on in the world is you know the world can take care of itself, right? But it's not it's not like the Christ apart from culture, which is based upon the idea that those two things are inimical. It's not that they're inimical. It's just that they are not. They're not really closely related to each other. I'm a, a person who takes this view is able to live in the world, uh, but doesn't let the world dominate their own values. What's really important to me? What's really important to me? Things like uh, uh, my relationship with uh, with God through Jesus Christ. That's what's really important to someone in that. Uh, and, and the world can kind of take care of itself. Now, what about the places in which there is going to be a conflict? I think the model here is one of accommodation on the one side, right? And maybe a little advocacy or transforming on the other. That is, when the two things do come into conflict, you try to work it out. You don't become a, an opponent of the regime, and you don't really become a reformer. You just really try to make it possible to, um, uh, to live peacefully uh, without uh, violating you know, your religion. I think of cases like the recent Little Sisters case is kind of like this. The Little Sisters are off doing their thing, uh, they're not fighting the world. They're just trying to help vulnerable people. Uh, and uh, on this one little problem that they have with the culture, they said, well, just how about uh, cutting us a little slack, right? And the, and the Supreme Court ended up you know, mostly saying that's right. So I think it's kind of an accommodationist idea so that people are able to live a full uh, a religious life in accordance with their own uh, convictions without uh, an, uh, an exaggerated uh, sense of the, uh, of the conflict. Um, so these, I think, are five principal models about the way in which religion and law interact. Maybe uh, religion just retreats and has nothing to do with law. Maybe uh, religion uh, is uh, all with it, that religion conforms to the law and supports the law and and, uh, and, uh, is part of the culture and and and, uh, and so forth. Maybe uh, religion is an, is a revolutionary uh, force against uh, the legal uh, regime. Maybe religion is a transformative or reforming. Uh, and uh, by the way, I don't mean for that necessarily right. You know, religions can be taking. What, we, what any one of us might think is a bad position just as easily as what any of us might think is a good position, but nonetheless transforming or reforming uh, idea. Or maybe most people most of the time uh, live their religious lives uh, and live in the world, and those two things are on different planes, and there's not that much uh, uh, interaction. Um, 
my last comment on this, and then I hope to we'll have some conversation, is that I think the position that one is in in the culture makes a great deal of difference for this. So part of it is part of these are theological choices. Part of them, part of this is judgments about what the culture looks like. You know, how evil is it? Is it? Just a, you know, is it just a little bit off, or is it really fundamentally terrible to the core? So judgments about the culture, the theological judgments, but in addition to the, and tradition, also I think different religions have quite different traditions based upon their experience. Uh, I think by and well, I'm not sure if this is so true anymore, but for much of its modern history, uh, uh, Jews tended. Uh, to have an attitude that they knew that they were living in Christendom, Jews in the West, right? And so it was mostly leave us alone, don't hurt us, right? Uh, rather than to uh, uh, to uh, uh, engage in one of the other ways. A lot of this has to do with you know who who you are, what's the tradition of the particular uh, belief. But I think a lot of it also has to do with what position you have in society. And so I think that from the point of view of a of a of a citizen, um, you know, not somebody wielding political power except in the ballot box and and maybe in in ordinary democratic discourse, but just an ordinary powerless uh, uh, citizen, um, uh, I think that the idea of transformation is somewhat appealing. That is, we try to make things as good as we are, as we can, right? As citizens, uh, uh, religious people have just as much right as anybody else to try to make the world a better place, right? We, we don't have a privileged position in a disestablishmentarian regime. Uh, we don't get to run things because we're religious or because we're Christian, but we have just as much right to advocate for what we think is right as anybody else. Uh, I think that's a very common and perhaps correct even view uh, from the point of view of the ordinary citizen. Um, what about people who, who hold official positions, though? And um, so I was a judge uh, on the U.S. Court of Appeals uh, for seven years, and this is something that I uh, gave had had to give a lot of thought to. Um, and I can't say that I have, you know, the right answer because it's really just a very hard problem as to how to how to do this, but. I guess for most of my judicial life, I was in this, you know, Christ and, and culture in paradox view that for the most part, uh, I believe that, you know, I could be an active member of my church, I could have an active prayer life, I could have an active spiritual life, but as a judge, my job was to follow the law. Um, and if somebody, if it, the, the, there were very few occasions of temptation even, uh, but I think if I had been in a situation where I was tempted to use my official power to uh, transform the world in a direction other than what our democratic process produced as law, that I would have thought it was my job to resist that temptation rather than to use whatever levers of power uh, I have. Now, part of that may be related not so much to my theology as it is my understanding of law, because uh, I don't believe that law is merely politics. I don't, I'm not a legal realist. I think that law is something out there. I mean, this is so crude and so, and uh, we, we would need a much more sophisticated vision, but essentially I believe the job of the judge is to see what the law is and then to apply it rather than to use the discretion of uncertainty in the law in order to make it more what I want it to be. So, you know, in an uncertain case, it seems to me the job of the judge is to 
uh, decide that case so as to make the system of law as seamless and coherent and, inter- and internally intelligible as possible rather than to make it closer to what my particular vision of the, of the right is. And I think that's, I associate with that with Niebuhr's idea of, of paradox because I see for the most part in that role that uh, religious life and uh, uh, and dis- legal decision making are almost always, maybe not a hundred percent, but almost always uh, uh, in different spheres. Now, does that mean that being a Christian judge it does not make any difference? I think that that isn't right because I do think, as Niebuhr says. Uh, that it's incumbent upon Christians to uh, to approach everything they do with humility, with love, with uh, a, a empathy for other human beings. So I think, uh, and and and, uh, and and especially I should say, with humility, that the, not to believe that. Uh, uh, that you, as the judge, are like the, the fountainhead of all uh, wisdom and understanding, and um, I'm not—I would not say for a moment that Christians have anything like a monopoly on that. I wouldn't even necessarily say that it's a strong predictor. And I believe other religious traditions have similar. But speaking for myself. Uh, you know, I draw and drew inspiration from uh, what I see as the values of character of a Christian in being a judge rather than um, taking Christianity as a set of competing, you know, of values and principles, which I then would be applying uh, instead of the law. Um, so... With that, uh, thank you for your attention, and we have, what, another uh, 20 minutes or so we can engage in conversation. Yes, sir. Professor Hubbard um, has oh. uh, three comments, and then uh, into um, question and answers and conversations. Thank you. Um, thank you, uh, uh, Professor McConnell, for, um, for, your, for your remarks. Uh, I learned a lot from them, and I'm very much looking forward to um, uh, hearing what you have to say during the open uh, Q&A as well. It really uh, provides us a framework, I think, for thinking about uh, the, really the manifold relations. I think that that's part of what the, 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 the remarks uh, offer is there's so many different ways in which uh, religion or, or, or people who are religious um, can relate with culture, with law, uh, with the public sphere uh, in, in general. Um, my remarks aren't, aren't um, uh, directly responsive, although there are a couple places where well, they'll, they'll overlap and, and maybe even disagree, I'm not sure. But, um, but let me begin by saying, uh, first of all, I, uh, I am completely unschooled uh, in this uh, on topics of, of the relationship between religion uh, and law, so uh, you, uh, you'll have to forgive me um, for my lack of, uh, of learning in this area. Uh, my comments are just based on my own uh, personal uh, experience and reflection uh, as, a, um, as a lawyer, but also as, as a person who considers himself religious. Uh, so, religion and law, is there a connection? Uh, I guess when I, when I was confronted with this, with this topic, I, I tried to think to myself, you know, what, what, what is religion? What is law? Are they similar? Are they different? And so, you know, I, there, there's some ways in which I think it, it's, pretty, it's pretty clear that there's a lot in common, actually, and I just want to point those out uh, fairly, fairly briefly. Um, you know, historically, uh, religion and law maybe weren't even different, different things, right? Uh, uh, this is this idea of, of um, uh, as Professor McConnell says, the, the Christ of culture, that these two things simply weren't separable. Uh, what was religion was the law and vice versa. What was the state uh, was uh, the religious hierarchy and vice versa. So certainly historically there's a lot um, in common. Uh, both systems are normative. Normative uh, in the sense that they, they um, talk about what is right and wrong, what should be done. Uh, also normative in the sense that they establish norms. They establish norms that are um, uh, systems that define permissible conduct for society. Um, both religion and law have what you might call scripture. I think that's worth um, noting. Uh, Scripture, uh, in in two relevant respects. One, the norms 
do not flow directly from first principles, but flow indirectly from first principles through authority. The idea that norms are to be followed uh, because they come from authority. And we can discuss whether those norms are good or bad norms by, uh, by, by, by thinking about, about the principles upon which, upon which they rest. But, but ultimately, um, compliance with norms is based on the idea that um, they flow from authority as such. Um, and this authority, in many cases, um, uh, uh, certainly involves uh, 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 human leaders who, who announce uh, uh, rules, but they're often interpreting text. The authority comes from text. This isn't true, certainly, for all legal systems or for all religions, uh, but for the ones that I'm more familiar with, at least I'll confess my limitation in this respect, um, there, there is a lot of text that is being uh, interpreted. And as a consequence, because we're talking about text written by humans in human languages being interpreted by humans, uh, whether we're talking about religion or law, there's always going to be an element of, of linguistic and sociological analysis attached to, um, to the study of, of religion or, or law. Uh, they're both institutions. Of course, all sorts of things are institutions, but they're both um, um, institutions. They're both human institutions, and I would distinguish religion from, from faith or from belief in, in a god, for example. Um, uh, I, you know, as, a, as, a, uh, as a believer myself, you know, I believe in the objective reality of, uh, of God. I believe in God's love of all creation. Um, but I'm very aware of the fact that religion isn't an objective reality that's, that's, that's out there. It is a human institution. It's something created by humans, um, just as law uh, is an institution uh, created by uh, uh, by humans, and I think there's a tendency sometimes to engage in this sort of reverse anthropomorphic uh, fallacy when we talk about the law or or, or religion. Um, the idea that it's, it's it's out there, and I'll push back a little bit on the claim about uh, illegal realism and, and, and formalism, although I don't think I actually disagree with Professor McConnell in this respect. Um, you know, God is out there, but religion is here. Religion is people. It's a human institution. Um, and and the, moral, uh, the moral basis for the law uh, may be out there, uh, but the law isn't out there. It's, it's, it's right here um, uh, because it defines conduct for humans in a, con- in a, in a human context. Um, and, and I think that's... Um, and I, so I think there's a parallel there. And I, and I, and I think it's, there's no accident that um, Justice Holmes, you know, probably his most famous um, epithet for the old formalist view of the common law, um, the, the idea that, that the common law is simply out there to be found, uh, you know, the, the quote, the common law is not a brooding omnipresence uh, in the sky, uh, but an articulate voice of a sovereign. And I think one can, could say the same thing about, about religion, no matter how valid uh, you believe your religion to be, and I consider myself a religious person, um, it is worth distinguishing the human institution from religion from whatever um, objective or transcendental basis that institution may rest upon. And the same could be said uh, for law as well. Um, as a consequence, because there are so many of these parallels we might observe between law and religion, I think there's a tremendous amount to be learned uh, from the study of, of religion. And, and Professor McConnell's remarks uh, certainly give us a framework for asking and pursuing a lot of, a lot of questions and a lot of parallels that arise. Um, you know, there's a tremendous amount that's been done on the study of, of religion, of how believers interpret scripture, um, how as a historical matter within any given religion, um, uh, uh, rules of conduct become legitimate, how norms and institutions become durable. These are all questions we want to study as we think about, about the law. We care about how to interpret uh, our legal scriptures. Uh, we care about how, how laws gain legitimacy and how legal institutions uh, become durable. And of course, we can also, for those of us who consider ourselves uh, a, a religious or consider ourselves uh, believers, uh, we might take a somewhat more um, internal perspective. Um, uh, how does um, the practice of religion affect uh, how I approach uh, the law? Now, you know, where to begin? There's so much to be said here, and I, I certainly won't say uh, much at all. I guess I'll just I'll just offer one. One comment is that's just designed to build on, on uh, the observations that, um, that I've just uh, remarked upon, um, which is the similarity, the resemblance that one might see between uh, religion and law as human institutions uh, means that religion and law have um, sometimes overlapping functions, maybe even competing functions. 
And this raises the possibility that law and religion can coexist uh, in different ways. They may occupy um, distinct spheres, but mutually support and reinforce each other. They may act as substitutes for each other, uh, accomplishing something like a division of labor in the definition, articulation, and enforcement of norms of human conduct. Or, of course, uh, each could see the other as a threat. Um, but I would caution against being too quick to perceive the latter, uh, the latter uh, possibility. Uh, I, I, I worry that sometimes there is an error to which people of all different ideological or religious or irreligious backgrounds uh, may succumb. Uh, which uh, I think of uh, personally as what you might call um, the totalizing conception of the state and of formal law. The idea that um, if there is a contested norm uh, in society, that the state and the institutions of the state, legal institutions or political institutions, is the form to finally adjudicate that contested norm. As someone who believes in a vision of constitutional democracy, a government of limited powers, I see um, the temptation that that view uh, creates for those of us who are involved in the legal system to be, um, to be a dangerous one. Uh, and for people who consider themselves believers, consider themselves uh, religious, um, I think that view is also self-defeating. Uh, what it does is it concedes the domain of moral authority uh, to the state, putting uh, religion in the role not of moral authority, not of teacher or leader, but rather of advocate to a higher authority, which is the state as moral adjudicator. And uh, in my view, that is something uh, that one should uh, approach with great caution. Uh, so with that, I'm, I've already spoken uh, too long. I'll, uh, I'll sit back down and I look forward to uh, your discussion. Yes. You. Yes, you. And in each of those cases, I think uh, the conservative legal community was, I would perceive as on the side of religious liberty. Um, are you concerned at all that while religion is apolitical, uh, it's not just a line up with any sort of like legal norm? Uh, that the rest of the left is at least viewed as not necessarily anti-religion, but on the other side of those on the right favoring religious liberty? Is that, is that something we should worry about for um, the future of religion in our society as an apolitical or nonpartisan uh, institution? I do worry about that a lot. Um, I think, and I certainly hope, but I also think uh, that this is a passing phenomenon. I don't mean passing as in it's going to be gone next week, uh, but that over the course of decades, I think that these things look rather different. Um, uh, I was a law clerk for uh, Justice Brennan, and you know, I tend toward center right. He tends toward the other side. Right, and so, uh, but one of the things upon which we quite agreed was uh, the doc idea of free exercise of religion. You know, he was the author of the of Sherbert against Varner, uh, very committed to the idea that uh, uh, religious people who dissent from the state should be able. You know, we, we should cut them as much slack as possible. Not obviously uh, when it threatens. Peace and good order, and uh, but uh, as you know, as much slack as possible. And uh, then, when I was a lawyer in the Reagan Justice Department, uh, they took the opposite view. And so, you know, I, this is my liberal position, right? You know, I might have had another one too, but you know, <laughs> this was my most conspicuous liberal. Uh, legal position was advocacy for Justice Brennan's view of the free exercise of religion. Um, that wasn't that long ago, 
right? But things have, as you say, uh, changed a good bit. I don't think we should exaggerate the change. Um, a lot has to do with the choice of cases and also this particular administration uh, that we have uh, uh, that, that we've, we've been through, which has particular commitments to certain things that were um, contrary to at least conservative Protestantism and, and, and Catholicism. Uh, I expect another administration will have a different set of issues. Uh, uh, immigration, for example, I could easily imagine clashes be, uh, coming from the opposite direction. Uh, uh, churches uh, will become sanctuaries. Again, of course, I have no idea what the new administration is going to do, but at least it's easy to imagine uh, uh, that, uh, that the conflicts are going to start coming from the opposite direction again, and then this will seem like a quaint period. Um, I also uh, would like to note in, in the Supreme Court uh, how often the court has been unanimous uh, there have been, uh, you know, the Hobby Lobby case was closely divided, uh, but uh, uh, the first case under RIFRA, RIFRA has now become controversial too, even though it was at the, uh, I, when it was enacted, it was, uh, it was the entire religious and civil liberties world against, on the arrayed on the other side were, uh, you know, uh, prison officials and school board officials, basically governmental officials who don't, didn't want to have to accommodate what they were doing to, to pesky uh, religious dissenters. Uh, but it certainly wasn't a left-right. It was a, uh, and, the, and the first big federal RIFRA case, which incidentally was Chief Justice Roberts' first opinion in uh, Ocentro, unanimous, uh, Hosanna Tabor, a free exercise clause, not RIFRA, but for actual constitutional free exercise exception from a non-discrimination statute, unanimous. Uh, uh, the uh, mo most recent RIFRA case, the uh, well, uh, uh, actually not the most recent one, but one back, the uh, the prison Muslim prisoner case, unanimous. And even the Little Sisters of the Poor case turned out to be unanimous. Uh, uh, so I think there's a huge reservoir of opinion that uh, uh, religious people really do have a right to follow their religions and that we ought to be as accommodating as possible and that that's, what, that's one of the things that America uh, is all about. I think uh, the the post Obergefell um, uh, politicization and partisanization of this issue. Um, I'm, I'm I'm hoping it will be uh, short lived. Yes. So for me, some of the most interesting problems uh, are at the intersections of multiple religions and secular folks engaging with each other, trying to find common ground, but also, often this also leads to conflict. How ought we both as individuals and society collectively resolve these issues? Well, uh, I guess it, it depends on what you mean by resolve. I, I don't actually think we will resolve these issues. Uh, the best I hope for is that we're able to uh, disagree with one another with a degree of, of harmony and peace and nonviolence and toleration. That's the best we can hope for. I don't even really aspire to a culture in which we all agree. I think that would be, um, I think it would be boring. I also think it would be bad for 
religion in that I think we I think we should be and actually for any serious belief whether religious or not uh, we need to be challenged by people who disagree with us uh, we need to be because it, it forces us to figure out why we really believe in it and maybe we were wrong maybe we shouldn't be believing it but maybe we're right but it's a good thing for us to have to figure out why we're right if we're right uh, so you know I don't know if that's responsive, but uh, uh, that's the best I can do. Yes? Thank you very much. So I thought the framework you laid out was really interesting, and particularly the idea that historically religion across the world, but in the US, has been pretty accommodationist as sort of policies have changed. And I was wondering if you thought that with some of the recent developments in the courts and the change in laws, whether the shift is shift in sort of social norms is so fast that religion is going to have trouble accommodating or whether you think uh, it eventually will sort of reach a fairly similar equilibrium to where it was before. Um, my crystal ball was none too good. Um, I um, you know, I hate to mention recent events uh, but if we're talking about the judiciary, uh, I think that the sorts of people that uh, uh, President-elect Trump has said that he will name to the Supreme Court are quite different from the sorts of people that Mrs. Clinton would have named to the Supreme Court. And uh, I think any of us would probably say that that is a mixed bag. But maybe from the point of view of this discussion, this might be one of the mixed bag things that are going to be good rather than bad um, and that I think that uh, uh, partly because of what this first question was saying in our current climate of opinion I think that uh, uh, center-right jurists tend on the whole to be relatively accommodationist in their uh, in their views now what I hope and think but hope is that they will stick to that when the issues are coming from the opposite direction because what disturbs me maybe most of all about our political culture is the way in which people turn on a dime uh, so they're all for uh, limiting presidential power when it's George W. Bush and all for increasing governmental power when it's Barack Obama or the opposite. Uh, I'm kind of hoping that maybe we can all get around, rally around limiting presidential power uh, under, uh, uh, under our president-elect. Uh, um, maybe that's something that will, uh, that, that will be a very good uh, outcome. Uh, federalism is very similar. Uh, federalism, people, you know, defend states' rights when it's uh, convenient and 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 not otherwise. And you know, freedom of speech. I think there may have been a brief shining moment, like flag burning cases, when uh, when freedom of speech was defended for everybody. But I think that's unraveling. Certainly on American campuses, it has unraveled in a, uh, in a remarkable fashion. Right. Did, did you, I don't know if you all, or you're probably too young to know, uh, the free speech movement was actually a campus movement. Students used to want freedom of speech. Um, and um, uh, it just seems remarkable. They, they probably even got to decide what Halloween costumes uh, to wear for themselves without having grown-ups uh, uh, telling them what, uh, what was going to be offensive. Uh, I, I just hope that with re respect to religious freedom that whoever we're talking about is going to play with an even hand. And uh, if, if Muslims have the right to wear beards in prison, as I think that they do, in spite of neutral and generally applicable prison regulations, well, people who don't want to provide what they regard as abortifacient drugs also should have, a, um, have, have consideration. I, the difference between the cases is just whether we agree with them or not. And I don't think that that's... Um, 
uh, and a a system of law of equal rights under the law that's not the way things should should go Uh, yes Mark Bill wrote a book called The Civil War is a Theological Crisis and the basic argument was the the political process then was tasked with solving what should have been a legal problem. Now, today, there are a lot of people very concerned that evangelical Christians have been involved in pushing for reduction of voting rights, access to uh, the ballot box of African Americans especially in the South Rapid trouble voting this last election. Do you see any problem when you look back through the history of cases that were decided against African Americans, against their rights for years? Do you see any problems with religion being a source of appeal for decision making? Well, you know, religion is a source of appeal for decision-making for what we now regard as the good and for what we now regard as the bad. Uh, It's a mixed bag. You can find religions providing, you know, enormous passion for great evil, and you can find religion providing enormous passion for great good. it's a mixed bag just like everything else. Right? It's not the only mixed bag out there. Uh, you know, so are newspaper editorials and party platforms and secular ideologies and intellectuals and <laughs> populist uprisings. You know, they're all mixed bags. I mean, if we just had an automatic way of producing the right, just result, for all questions, maybe you and I would be able to agree on everything, uh, but uh, uh, we live in a diverse place where people don't agree about everything, and the best we've been able to work out is for people to, you know, operate through a democratic process. So I don't. That, that may just sound like my platitudinous uh, civic speech, but that's what I, what I think. Uh, yes, in the back. Professor, um, in, in either Niebuhr's view or in yours, do you think that the theology, or sort of like the core theology, offers guidance one way or another on these five uh, options you laid out? I mean, I'm asking this, I'm not religious at all myself, but I'm interested sort of historically and philosophically. It's always seemed to me that the Gospels and Paul's letters, on balance, are pretty different toward the state, almost apathetic. Um, toward it, and of course, a lot has changed since then. But I was just wondering whether you think there's any, whether you can just find any of the five models you want there, or whether there really is a good theological reason to tilt one way or the other. Does it change now that we're in a democratic society? Like um, it's, it, I, I think I'm quoting you when you say, "Does the theology provide an answer?" And I think the answer is there is not. Uh, the theology doesn't exist. Uh, there are different theologies. One of the reasons I really like Niebuhr's book is that he uh, roots each of these five views in, uh, in, in very serious uh, Christian thinkers. That is, people... Uh, so. Uh, and, and I didn't, you know, go through that. But in each of his chapters, he tells us, well, this is a view that, uh, you know, for example, this is the this is a view of, of Saint Thomas Aquinas, or this is and, and Augustine is a different view, Calvin is a different view, Luther is a different view, Saint Paul is a different view. Um, uh, so I, I think that they, I don't think that there is one answer. I think that. Uh, uh, that there are serious theological arguments uh, behind all of them, and I guess I'm somewhat glad that the church takes, uh, you know, is across the map. But may I write on the particular question you raise about St. Paul and 
and an overly uh, uh, deferential view toward government. Romans 13 is, uh, is the locus classicus of the view that you're describing. Um, uh, you know, governments are ordained by God and, and, uh, 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 and so forth. Uh, there's a really excellent book by John Witte uh, from uh, Emory Law School uh, called The Reformation of Rights. And it's an intellectual history of Protestantism beginning with uh, Calvin, who embraced the, uh, this sort of Romans 13 vision and was very anti-revolution, right? And going through Protestant history for the next two or three hundred years, I think the last chapter is about uh, uh, the American Revolution, and showing how the th- um, how the thinking within Protestantism. I'm not talking about here, you know, Protestants sort of abandoning their heritage, but but a a, a very serious logical. Uh, progression of ideas uh, leads ultimately to uh, a rather revolutionary idea in the American Revolution where uh, a slo- one of the main slogans, and this was proposed to be the first seal of the United States prior uh, under the Articles of Confederation period, was a woodcut of the Red Sea parting the people of Israel getting through and the waters crashing in on the tyrant and around it it says uh, the slogan which was one of the great slogans of the revolution is resistance to tyranny is obedience to God how do you get from Romans 13 to there read the book it is a great read This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.